Hello, America. Welcome to Your Leo Nation. I am the Chief Mark Garrett. And as you know, we believe in the rule of law, a civil society, and self-responsibility. And man, the rule of law is under attack right now across this nation and in so many key uh, locations across the country. And when I say key, I'm talking about where I live, unfortunately, Los Angeles County. But I am so fortunate, as you all are, to uh, have with us today a man who's trying to change that, and I am confident who's going to change that once he gets to the office, John McKinney, uh, Deputy DA, Los Angeles County. John, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, we met a couple of months ago for the first time in person, had a great lunch, and I was sold. I said, this is the man. This is the man I'm, ha I'm buying a chicken sandwich for right now <laughs> who's going to change, change his wave in Los Angeles, uh, the disaster. Right. So, uh, yeah, I know it's a goal. And, and, and uh, I was just with you at a fundraiser a few weeks ago, and I'm sitting there watching you. I said, man, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the spear point of a civil society, this man here. This is what we need to get back to. Thank you. So, you know, uh, I talk too much. I'm going to sit back and I want you to just talk about your story, where we're going, what we're going to do and how we're going to get there. All right. Well, let me let me thank you, Mark, for having the opportunity to talk to you and address your audience. This is a great pleasure for me and very important to what I'm trying to do in Los Angeles County, which is run a grassroots based campaign to take out a, a fairly entrenched incumbent in Los Angeles County, and that's George Gascon. Um, let me tell you, your audience, a little bit about me. You know some of these things. Uh, I've been working for the people of Los Angeles County for the last 25 years. I've been a frontline prosecutor. That means I've been in a courtroom for 25 years straight, working with law enforcement, victims, witnesses, and uh, trying cases before juries. Uh, in my time in the DA's office, I've worked at just about every violent category of violent crime you can think of from child adult abuse, sexual abuse, gang related murders. And for the last 10 years before I was demoted for speaking out, I was in the highest uh, trial assignment in the office, which was the major crimes division where I prosecuted a number of high profile cases, including most recently the killing of Nipsey Hussle. I started speaking out against George Gascon's policies three weeks after he was sworn into office. I gave my first public speech, first public speech of my life, first time I had ever called out an employer for what I thought was wrongdoing, uh, and it's all intentional. Uh, I knew when I did that that I was putting my 25-year career on the line, but I was at peace because I felt that in the 25 years that I've been a deputy DA, I've accomplished everything I set out to do as a prosecutor and more. I was uh, content to keep going, but I felt that if these words, which are so needed at this moment, to ring the alarm bell, to wave the flag, to get people's attention that these policies were going to be detrimental, if this speaking out results in some kind of punishment for me, it'll be well worth it. And so I did it and I kept doing it through not one, but two recalls. And eventually it led to him removing me from the major crimes division 
and putting me in essentially a misdemeanor assignment. Uh, I think that's an affront to the voters of Los Angeles County. I think he did it because I was having an impact on that big stage. And he just wanted to set me aside where he thinks people will stop paying attention to me or hear me at all. So that's the work that I've done. I, I'm very proud of my career. I'm very proud of the work that I've done with law enforcement over the years. Um, I know law enforcement officers have a very difficult job for a number of reasons that most people don't even think about. I was talking to a group of officers in Covina just a couple of days ago. Uh, introducing myself to them and telling them a little bit about my platform. And, um, you know, I talked about the fact that they have the unique job that they don't get to anticipate the urgency of a situation oftentimes. They don't get to anticipate uh, a crisis that can happen in a split second. You know, they're riding around talking to their partner, making small talk one minute, and then they're facing a life or death situation the next. I don't think most people in the community think about policing that way. Uh, and, and we talked about a number of other issues, but I assured them that when I become the district attorney, um, they're going to have a district attorney who's going to be fair to them, who understands the nature of their job, and we will work together for the betterment of the community. That means one standard of justice that applies to everybody, including police officers who break the law, but it also means a district attorney who's not going to use police officers as a scapegoat for what's going on on the streets and in the community. Or as I think the current DA does, use police officers in the prosecution of police officers anytime he finds himself in any political hot water. That will stop. A number of other things will change. We'll start prosecuting uh, cases again. We'll start uh, upholding the law again. We'll start putting public safety at the center of what the prosecutor does again. We'll start supporting victims again. Uh, all the things that stopped two and a half years ago, we'll put back in motion. Uh, and in addition to that, we'll do some things that we've never done with the DA's office before. I think that there are a lot of missed opportunities for us to be out of the courtroom and into the community. I think there are a lot of things that we can do on the crime prevention side. You need prevention and enforcement together. Uh, in the past, we've had a lot of enforcement, very little follow-up and prevention. Right now, we're, we're not getting either one. Mm -hmm. When I'm DA, we're going to get a balance of enforcement and prevention so that we not only stop crime, but it's something that's going to be sustainable over time. And for those people who aren't so uh, hardcore, we're going we're gonna to bring them back. A lot of those young men who are 15, 16, 17, who can still be brought back in line and put on a path to a better future like the one I've had, we're going to go get those young men and get them back. Well, John, you know, again, I've had the pleasure of, of sitting down with you before one-on-one, -on -one, listening to you speak in public, and some of these things you touched on um, are so important. And they go to the core of the battle that we're all fighting, those of us who actually believe in the rule of law. And, and one of those is, is objectivity and adhering to what the law says. You, you touched on a minute ago, fairness. I do, I want to go back. I want to go back a lot because your story is amazing. 
But I want to go back to two things that are related. You touched on a minute ago. One was, was uh, I won't use the name, but I use in public, private with them, but Gascon, um, when he demoted you, and, and clearly this was, this was punitive and this is retribution in his part. Uh, and also using prosecution of law enforcement officers as, as a political tool, as a foil. In other words, I just want to talk about what kind of man, what kind of person, what kind of human being this is, is in office right now. Well, you know, I've tried to keep my critique of George Gascon focused on the policies. Um, I've tried to not make it personal. I don't know the man. The people might find this hard to believe, but I've never actually met him face to face the way that I'm talking to you now. And he worked one floor above me. <clears throat> now, you might imagine if you were the CEO of a company or you were going to take over as president of some organization, one yeah. of the things you would have on your agenda fairly early on is getting out and meeting the people who you expected to carry out your vision, right? And here I am in major crimes, the most elite trial unit, the biggest cases in the office. You would think he'd make a, some time to come down and just say, hello, I'm George Gascon, and this is what I hope to do, and I, I need your help. Never happened. Mm -hmm. Never happened in uh, two and a half years. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I think without getting too personal about him, I do think what people see is a person who seems to lack any real sensitivity especially for victims, but the community at large. He lacks empathy for victims. Uh, anytime you can close off a unit that exists to support victims at parole hearings, something that without a prosecutor there, they have no ability to understand. If you can close that unit off and then further say, you know what, we're not even going to notify these victims who may have had a child murdered or may have themselves been raped brutally that the person who did it is coming up for parole. If it's your policy to stop that, then I'll leave the audience to conclude what type of person that is. Well, well guess right. Guess what? Right now I'm your audience. <laughs> and as I've been before and I'm listening and, and I know you are in a, uh, a uh, unique or at least unusual position. You're running against your boss. I'm not. And I don't, don't, always think that that personal has a relationship to professional in one's life. Not always. I do think in this case it does. And there are enough examples as far as I'm concerned to uh, make me believe that his personal agenda is affecting his public persona and it's not persona, but his public policymaking. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt in my mind, quite frankly, coming from my position, you know, former chief of high patrol, you know, I'm still in contact with a lot of people who know a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And when I start looking at public press conferences and what I know is going on behind the scenes, uh, they're inseparable, that personal and professional. So I'm speaking, I'm speaking on your behalf right now. I can say it. You don't have to. Um, this is why I think the man is, he's a bad person. Um, and I want the audience to hear more about, you know, where we're going. You summed it up very well, but. I sat back, you know, a couple of months ago when I met with you and uh, having that nice lunch and I was just enthralled with your personal story, speaking of personal, mm -hmm. and I would love for you to share that with our listeners and our viewers. Sure, sure. Um, 
you know, I talked about being a deputy DA for 25 years. That's my work experience. But I have a life experience before that that I think is just as important to why I believe I'm the best person to lead the DA's office into the future. Um, my mom passed away when I was two years old. I have no real recollection of my mother. I was just too young. I can't get back that far, you know? Mm -hmm. um, my dad, though, is another story. Um, I remember him very well, but he passed away when I was five years old. So I remember being in kindergarten, having lost both my mother, and I, I knew I was a little different from the rest of the kids, most of whom had mothers who would drop them off in the morning. Uh, but then I lost my dad, and I became one of a kind in that classroom. I was the kid without a mother or a father. But fortunately for me, I had an older sister who had three children of her own, by the way, and she had just gone through a divorce from her husband. So she went from a married woman of three to a single mother of three who just lost her father with two minor children, me and another sister. And she bravely stepped up to the plate. She made a lot of personal sacrifices in her own life. She's one of these unsung heroes that walk among us who never get credit for the wonderful things that they do. She raised me and my next oldest sister as part of her own family. So she became a single mother of five. We had a, um, an apartment that was probably about, I don't know, 800 square feet, two bedrooms. I didn't, I didn't know this part about the 800 square foot home. Yeah. And, and the kitchen wash, the kitchen uh, laundry area was the biggest room in the house, right? So we had these two little bedrooms. My sister and her youngest child slept in one room. The other two girls slept in another room. And then my nephew and I slept on the couch for like a year and a half before my sister went out and bought some, remember the plant paneling? Of course. Press board panel. Oh, but my, my mom and brother and I put it up in my bedroom when I was about 12 years old in Alhambra. I remember. She put a track along the ceiling, sectioned off this already, you know, 400, 350 square foot living room and created a bedroom just big enough, yeah. wide enough for bunk beds. And, and that's how, you know, we lived for a number of years. Um, and so my early life required me overcoming some adversity and the adversity was tempered by this wonderful woman in my life who now became my mother, my father, my best friend. And I, I can't uh, express in words a, enough of a fitting tribute to her, especially we're here the day before Mother's Day and she's very much on my mind right now. Uh, so I was raised in Passaic, New Jersey, northern New Jersey, uh, 20 minutes from Manhattan, no traffic. Of course, there's never no traffic, right? <laughs> uh, but in that Northeast area, uh, you have these old urban cities, not unlike some of the, the, the more uh, spicy mm -hmm. urban areas here in Southern California. And I grew up, I was a teenager during the early 80s when crack cocaine hit the street. And that really changed everything. In, in my environment, and I think in big cities all over the country, you know, experience the same kind of change, dramatic change, overnight change. Uh, young friends of mine who I was going through school with, playing football with, listening to music with, 
all of a sudden saw the attractive nuisance of that corner where they mm. could go sling dope. And for guys who struggled to get $5 together to do anything, all of a sudden these guys were making $5,000 a week slinging dope. And that left people like me looking at them wondering, why aren't we doing the same thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Uh, and it's not just a one-time temptation. It's every day. Mm-hmm. Every day you get up and you see your friend, the guy you used to play baseball with, basketball with, wearing the latest clothes, renting some luxury car, mm-hmm. surrounded by girls. And when you're a young man, that's a very powerful thing, mm-hmm. attraction. Uh, so I know something about how to grow up in that kind of intense crime environment and what it takes to avoid it, what it takes if you dip your toe in it, which I didn't do, but I had friends do to get back out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what motivates people to do it is not what, what most people think. This whole notion that people commit crime because they have no choice is not true. Oh, man. Uh, people commit crime by and large because they see an opportunity. And a lot of the young men who hit the block went there to make money. They saw an opportunity. They had no appreciation for delayed gratification because some of them didn't think that they would be around till 30 years old or 40 years old. So I need everything now. Mm -hmm. And the culture fed that sense of urgency in some of these young men. Some of us didn't have that. Um, some of us had were influenced by spending some time in church early on, by parents or other relatives like my sister who instilled certain values and certain morals in you, and a healthy appreciation for the consequences of breaking the law was also there. We didn't want to get arrested. We didn't want to go to juvenile hall. We didn't want to go to jail. It was a scary place. And it took all of that to keep me off the block because I was quite sure I could run out there and make more money than those guys. (laughs) And I'm also quite sure that if I had a district attorney like George Gascon in my city when I was growing up, I would have made different choices. I would have made catastrophic choices. I would have made choices that would have left me not going to college, not going to law school, not being a DA with 25 years of experience or sitting here talking to you right now. And one of the things that really bothers me about George Gascon's, Gascon and his policies is the effect that it's having on our young people, the message that's being sent to them. Uh, for example, one of his policies is he will not prosecute anyone under 18 for a misdemeanor crime. And we, you know, misdemeanors are not as serious as felonies, but they still cover a broader way of, of array of serious conduct, DUIs, even domestic violence. We have a lot of these young men who are, are smacking their girlfriends around and, and treating them poorly. They're not being held accountable for it. And we know what that's going to lead to later on. Nothing good. And what about those young women who are suffering? And seeing no consequences and coming to believe that this is normal and, and this is approved of, even by the district attorney. Well, I've got to interrupt you because you see me 
fidgeting over here and picking my glasses up and because you are hitting on so many points that make so much sense. I mean, it, it's just exciting for me to hear this and I'm not, I'm not embellishing how I feel about this. I'm, I'm not trying to be over dramatic. I mean it literally that I'm excited to hear someone in your position, um, and who can be the next DA for Los Angeles County speaking these words that it almost sounds foreign in today's age. In other words, going back to, uh, certain behavior brings certain consequences. This is almost like ancient history. Now mm -hmm. our kids don't hear this in school. And I, I know for a fact, uh, you know, people listen to a, a previous podcast I did about dealing with my, my, my son's, my nine-year-old son's school, the administration, about restorative justice and things like this or teaching kids at five years old. Mm -hmm. I said, no, you teach them right and wrong and their consequences. And like you said earlier, there's certainly not an absolute answer to uh, enhancing behavior and, 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 and rearing you know, a younger generation in the proper way, there are multiple tools that we can use. Mm -hmm. And there's something wrong with exploring those other tools as far as keeping kids in the right track or getting them back on the right track. But when you abandon, when you abandon uh, some of the foundational things that you and I grew up with, we are headed for disaster. And like you said a minute ago, John, that had you, had you been uh, subject to someone like George Gascon when you were a child, your, your DA back there, you probably wouldn't be sitting here right now talking to me, certainly not from your, from your position now. Right. These things actually have consequences. So I just want to interject there because it's just getting me fired up again. Every time I hear you, I, mm -hmm. damn it, we have to have this guy in a position to make the change that we need. So go ahead and continue, my friend. Yeah, so that was the 80s. Uh, a lot of lessons learned there, a lot of familiarity with crime, not just dope, but all the ancillary crime that happens around drug dealing, uh, which not only happened in the Northeast, but happened here in the Southwest. Um, I, I, I ended up going to college right out of high school, not because I wanted to, but because my sister really wanted me to. So I went for her. And anytime you do something for somebody else, your heart and soul is not into it. So I didn't do very well. I really wanted to catch up to those guys on the block, but I didn't want to do it the way they were doing it. I wanted to do it by working. So I dropped out of college and went to work and I had held just about every job you can think of. I was a picker packer. I was a driver. I worked as a blacksmith for a while, tempering still and banging it into shape. In my notes right here, blacksmith. <laughs> I didn't know that until, yeah, just so recently. Yeah, that that was quite a job. I, at one point, singed all the hair off my arms and my eyelashes working with the, with the big oven that we put the steel in. Um, but all of that builds character, right? I went to work uh, as a carpenter's apprentice for a while and eventually landed with a, a painting contractor, painting mostly new construction, and some of the wealthier areas of North New Jersey. And it was during that time in these homes of mostly stockbrokers who work over in the city. We even did Phil Sims's house while he was with the Giants. Well, I'm a Cowboys fan, so <laughs> let's just go and pass over that. No, I'm kidding. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, one time I was at 
Phil Sims' house and I was up on a ladder painting the eaves and his mother showed up and from a distance, she thought I was Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I'm, I'm actually kind of a pretty big guy today, you are. but back then I was half the size I am now. She's like, hey, Lauren, how are you doing? But Phil Sims, this is an aside, is a really great guy, really a quality person. I've, I've heard that about him. Yeah. Um, he came, he hung out with us. He bought us uh, some beer to have during lunch. Just a, a great guy. Um but it was in doing that work and looking around at that environment, I thought, you know what? I'd like to have something like this one day. Mm -hmm. um, and you can get there being a contractor. Mm -hmm. Contractors do very well. But I also had this intellectual awakening that I hadn't felt since elementary school. I mean, I went through high school. I was an underachiever. I wasn't really interested in what was being taught. It, I'm not going to blame the teachers because there were some good teachers there. My head was into sports. My head was into music you know rap was was coming up in the, in the early 80s we had run dmc and everybody was trying to make a demo and, and to get on um and so i just got away from thinking about the world current events that was kind of numb to it and that's part of the reason i didn't do well in college that first year but i had this spark this reawakening and started to look at the world and some of the violence that was happening in new york city at the time um some of the discussion around racial uh, disparity. And I decided, you know what, I want to go back to school. So while working full-time, I enrolled in a community college and started going full-time nights, weekends, and summers. And I finished up my two-year degree in two years, transferred into Rutgers. Rutgers uh, at the time was the public university in New Jersey. There are a couple more now. Um, and Rutgers was one of the schools that I couldn't get into right out of high school because I just didn't have the grades. Uh, but I did very well in community college. I mean, virtually straight A's. It's a little bit more of a relaxed standard because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. a lot of people like me have worked all day and they're coming in at night to do, do the classwork. But Rutgers was different. It was a more rigorous uh, intellectual environment and more competitive. And I did very well at Rutgers. And it was both in community college and at Rutgers that two different professors said to me, have you thought about going to law school? Which is nothing that I had ever thought about. I didn't even allow myself to think that I could be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any lawyers. But two different professors, two different schools, both pulled me aside and said, you have a really sharp writing style, very unique argumentative style. I don't know. I just see you being a lawyer one day. That kind of got stuck in my head. And, you know, at some point you got to decide, all right, I got this degree. What am I going to do with it? Uh, I decided to apply to law school. And that's what I did. Uh, I finished up Rutgers also in two years. So total, I did it in four years, Jeez. which I hear is kind of unheard of yeah. now. <laughs> But I did it also while working full-time days. Here's, a, here's another thing. I don't know if you know this. <clears throat> After I got my two-year degree, I was eligible to start teaching, at least as a substitute teacher. So I left the painting contractor and went to work for the East Orange School District in New Jersey as a substitute teacher. Uh, and it started off with me working as a sub, but it ended up with me being assigned basically 
as an unaccredited teacher because East Orange at the time had a need for teachers. Mm -hmm. So they were assigning substitutes to take over a teacher's class schedule. And I, I did everything from attend faculty meetings, le develop lesson plans, um, teach the classes, grade the papers, give the tests, meet with parents. It was really no difference between me and the accredited teacher in the room next door. Wonderful experience for me. And I think helped me become a better trial lawyer because you're in a classroom with children trying to explain sometimes difficult concepts and break it down in a way that they can understand it and appreciate it. And, um, and I think that helped me later on. But anyway, I finished up at Rutgers, applied to law schools all on the East Coast. I was a homebody. I didn't want to go anywhere. I ended up settling on Seton Hall Law School, which is in Newark, New Jersey, not far from where I lived. Gave them a deposit and said, I'm coming. Then I got this letter from UCLA, unsolicited. We'd like you to apply. We'll waive the uh, application fee. No desire to come out here at all. In fact, I was afraid of California because I read about <laughs> the mudslides, the fires, the gang violence, the riots. Kind of like today. Yeah, like, like not much has changed. <laughs> um, but I had a friend who said, oh, you should apply. He put a little pressure on me to apply. He said, look, you don't have to go. Just apply. See if you get in. Mm -hmm. I thought it was stupid and a waste of time, but I said, why not? I applied. Lo and behold, I come home one day. There's a big envelope in the, in the mailbox. I look at it. It says UCLA. And I'm like, wow, I know what's inside. You don't even have to open it when it's that big. Yeah. Right? And I was really proud of myself, man. I got to tell you, I had no intention of coming. But at least I could always say I applied to and got into this top 20 law school. Me from Passaic. Uh, underachiever in high school, you know, had to deal with some stuff growing up. And I, I accomplished that, but I'm still going to go over here to Seton Hall. <laughs> uh, but that same friend was like, oh, well, you should tell them you're, you're going to go. Go ahead, because they had a little envelope. If you're going to come, send this back, right? Uh, I'm going to go do that. Oh, just do it. You can decide later. Uh -huh. They're gonna, they, you got your spot at Seton Hall. Just tell them you're going to go and then think about it because you, you might a week from now, a month from now, you might decide this is the time for you to leave home, mm -hmm. go out in the world, become a man. This is a friend who didn't go to college himself. <laughs> you know, he's, he's a blue collar guy, but he saw something in me and he wanted to push me. And those are the kind of friends we really need in our lives, right? hundred percent. And it was because of him that I told UCLA I intend to come. And it was because of him I got on a plane in Newark and got off a plane in LA on August 5th, 1994 with $250 in my pocket and, and not a clue as to where I was going to stay that night. Showed up at the UCLA campus. They checked me in. They gave me a room for two weeks. I found a roommate and the rest is history. Uh, I went to work for the DA's office after three years of law school. I love the experience at UCLA, by the way. Great students, supportive environment, a lot of friends uh, that I made then are my friends today. And um, 
Yeah, what a life. What a life. By the way, it is a beautiful campus for those of you who haven't been on UCLA. I happen to be a Trojans fan, but yeah, <laughs> I got to be objective here. It's a, you know, it's a pretty place to go. Well, well, the year I started at UCLA, we were 14. Mm-hmm. Let's see, it was 15. I'm just saying. <laughs> they, they, they go back and forth. I, they do. It's all different now. What, 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 where are they going next year? What? Conference oh, to a different conference. Yeah, uh, I, I Big Ten, I think. Yeah, exactly. Big Ten. I can't keep up. Things change so much. It is a it is an amazing story. And um and, and quite frankly, you you've gone into more detail about it with me before. And we talked about some commonality really in our respective backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my dad, born nineteen twenty one, whose mom was murdered when he was twelve years old. Mm. We talked about that. But and, and, and your dad went to work as a truck driver at 12 years old. Great memory. Because I, I, I remember thinking that your dad was probably a lot like my dad. Now, I don't have a lot of actual time with him, but I have enough that I could project uh, what he would have been like had he lived to see me grow into a young man. And uh, I think from what you said about your dad, they were probably very s- similar. Well, I'm sure they were. They were from the same era, and uh, and the reason I think it's one of the reasons that that your story struck such a chord with me, n- not just on the personal, but certainly that was you know that that was probably the foot in the door, that personal connection with the respective stories, but more on a philosophical side, you know, talking long term, you know, bigger picture. That you touched on this earlier, John, about. Um, circumstances and um forget how you said it earlier but really the decisions that you made put you in the position in life that you enjoy today not the circumstances you were exposed to the decisions you made uh within those circumstances mm-hmm. determined the outcome or at least the trajectory of your life and the same thing for my dad so when we hear about all the things that are wrong out there and, you know, who owes whom what and blah, 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 blah. All of these things that are deflecting responsibility from the individual, Mm -hmm. our parents, your sister, they made decisions, uh, you know, not because of circumstances, but in spite of circumstances, they decided to do certain things that would take them through life in a much more productive, responsible way and civil way. And this is, this is what is, excites me so much about you speaking in these terms, these philosophical terms, and these terms based on values and character. It's so refreshing. And these are the things that, that really, really can reverse the trend we're seeing here in this county. And I don't care where you are right now listening to this, watching this. It doesn't matter if you are in Utah, if you're in Los Angeles County, if you're in Tennessee or or Florida or Washington State, it doesn't matter. Los Angeles County, like other ones, like I said earlier, these are high-profile, high-influence DA races or at least uh, uh, population centers that can affect the rest of the country absolutely if we can if we can start to reverse these trends so i don't care where you are we're going to talk about this as we wind things down here but look i support i support races across the country 
I don't look just at what's going to affect me and my family here tomorrow. I'm looking at what's going to affect the country. Mm-hmm. We can't win these big battles in, from an insular point of view. It has to be holistic. So I'm asking any of you, and again, I'll give you a chance to make a pitch here in a bit, John, but this is a cultural battle we're in. And look, it's just to get back to adhering to the rule of law. Right. And, you know, and I know there are some other people running out there. Mm-hmm. There are some other candidates. But, and we talked about this. I am adamant about this. And we can talk about just the recently the, uh, the L.A. mayor's race. And we had some candidates in that race who changed political affiliation kind of the last minute because they thought it would be a, a good political move. I call BS on that. Look, if you believe in the rule of law, if you believe in certain standards, if you believe in certain philosophies, will you please own your general political affiliation to say, listen, we can have disagreements on this or that or, you know, taxes or, you know, there are a lot of things we can disagree on mm-hmm. in a civil sense, but in a civil manner. But when it comes to certain things to me, and I know to you, that these are, they're not negotiable. Right. They're not negotiable. In other words, when I was a cop, someone ran, ran a stop sign. I didn't ask them if they were Democrat or Republican. I didn't ask them if they were liberal or conservative. They didn't ask me that. You ran a stop sign, you get a ticket, or at least you're going to get contacted. Mm-hmm. And I did that regardless of politics. Right. And that's exactly the way you feel about the district attorney's office. Absolutely. Politics. And by the way, so I'm a Republican, you're a Democrat. Right. But those things don't matter. I could not be more excited and supportive, uh, excited about you and supportive of you in this race because you and I agree on some very important core values and philosophies. Right. And I think it's true of any healthy law enforcement agency, whether we're talking about officers enforcing the law on the streets, prosecutors, and judges. It is an apolitical enterprise. Bad guys don't care about your political affiliation when they're breaking into your homes, if they molest your children, if they want your wallet or your watch, uh, if they're selling dope to your kids, if they're pushing fentanyl in the community. They do not care about your political affiliation, and they're not leading with theirs. When it comes to public safety, we have to elevate the discussion above politics. So I am a lifelong Democrat. I never lead with that because we're talking about an area of government that is above. Politics is great when you're talking about uh, the city council, you mm-hmm. know, or the state legislature. That, that's the, politi- the nature of the thing, but not when it comes to public safety. It just turns out that the DA's office is an elective office, so you got to run for it. That involves some use of political tools. You got to raise money. You got to get endorsements, but the conversation shouldn't be about politics. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't intend to make it that. And you're right. I, I don't know why anybody would change their political affiliation. And frankly, I think when you're running to be the district attorney, the gatekeeper of the criminal justice system is about honesty. It's about integrity. It's about transparency. Don't hide who you are. And I'm I'm not calling out anybody in particular because this race isn't even set yet. We don't even know all the candidates that are going to get in. 
but don't change who you are or spin who you are to try to manipulate the electorate. Uh, I tell my story as openly and candidly as I can. Uh, it's not a story that I scripted to run for office because, quite frankly, before Gascon, I had no intention of running for any public office. I don't consider myself a politician. I consider myself a prosecutor and the people's prosecutor. I've been that way for 25 years. It just so happens that I believe that I'm the best person for this job at this time. And I really believe I can get things back on track. When I'm elected, it will not be a defeat for people who want common sense criminal justice reform. It will be a victory because what they have in office right now is a man who's so ham-handed at its execution that he's making some of these reforms that are good, conceptually good. He's making it look bad and it's producing bad outcomes. So a vote for me in the end is a vote for somebody who's put in his 10,000 hours, 25 years with the organization, a clear understanding of the talent in that organization. I haven't allowed myself to think at this point about what my leadership would look like, but I know who's who in the zoo. It's not going to take me a year or two years to figure out who should be the assistant DA or the chief deputy or the directors. I can figure that out fairly quickly after I'm elected, and I will. And there will be major change. There'll be major change amongst the administration, um, and there'll be major change in policy. I wouldn't declare on day one I'm going to throw out everything Gascon did because that would just be too disruptive to the entire system. Some of that stuff is entrenched right now. It will all be changed eventually. It has to be because he's not doing any of it well. But there were some things that we were already doing that he came in and took to the extreme. We got to move those levers back in the proper place. There's some things he got rid of that we've got to bring back because it only made sense to do those things. He got rid of the special victims unit that focused on crimes, hard to prosecute crimes like sexual assault and domestic violence. He got rid of it. He said, oh, any DA can do these cases. Only somebody with no experience as a prosecutor would think any DA could, could do a direct examination of a child victim of sexual assault. That is a specialized skill. That's coming back. You know, and there are a number of other things that I would bring back as well. Well, I know you will. And, uh, you know, speaking of him, you know, a guy who's never spent a day in a courtroom, uh, other than maybe as a defendant in civil lawsuits. Um, but uh, I know you spent uh, virtually every day in the courtroom, so to speak, preparing cases, presenting, and your practical experience speaks for itself when people research you. You spent your career doing the hands-on, deep-in-the-weeds prosecution. I, um, I'm, I'm excited, as I've said so many times, many out of you listening know me personally and those of you who don't know me i know quite a few people in the da's office it's in law enforcement in this county in this county for 30 years 
I do not know when I've been so excited to endorse uh, or even be associated with, with a candidate for office and none more important as far as I'm concerned in these times, in today's struggles than John McKinney for Los Angeles County District Attorney. John, I want you to make a pitch. Where do people go to find you, to support you, to meet you, to be at rallies with you? How do they find you? What can they do? Well, first of all, thank you for that, those very kind words and that strong endorsement. I appreciate you. Um, and I appreciate you and the audience who may not be as familiar with your work as I'm becoming, because uh, we just met, like you said, not long ago. Uh, you've been a, a very strong leader in the law enforcement community in, in our Southern California for a very long time and had a great deal of accomplishment. So to hear you talk about me in those terms is, is uh, very uplifting. Uh, but for people who want to help this campaign, I have a website. It's called McKinney4LA.com. McKinney4LA.com. That website for now is the headquarters for the campaign. Uh, you can go to that website to learn more about me. Most importantly, you can go there to donate. You know, and this is my pitch for financial help. Campaigns cost money. For someone like me who's never run for office before, I need professional help. I have professional help. And because they do this as part of their profession, they get paid for it. So there is a certain amount of overhead to a campaign in order to pay for a campaign because I'm not independently wealthy. I mean, everybody now has heard my backstory. Um, I'm, I'm a government service worker who came to government from fairly humble background. And um, I'm happy. I'm happy with the, with what taxpayers pay me for my work. I think they get good value from me, but that doesn't leave a whole lot of money left to run a campaign. So I need financial help. People can donate at McKinney4LA.com. And you can also sign up to join the team, be part of our volunteer corps that we're building for late fall when this race really heats up. But Mark, I want to stress that I need financial help now, whether it's $50, $100, $200, whatever people can give, because there is a financial disclosure deadline that's coming up at the end of June, and that will be um, a measure by how serious a campaign I'm running or not. If I can come out on top as the candidate who raised the most money, that's going to put some wind at my back. If I'm at the bottom of that list, it's going to be a strong headwind going into the summer. And I don't know that I survive up to the primary. So if people believe in me, if they believe in proportional justice, if they believe in common sense and balance in the criminal justice system, where we enforce our laws, dangerous people are taken off the street. People who can be reformed are given a chance to take advantage of programming to help them reform, if you believe in that, then you believe in me. And if you believe in me, please support my campaign for district attorney. Well said, my friend, McKinney4LA.com. Folks, if you are serious about the rule of law, if you're serious about saving our society, damn it, get off your ass. I can't say it more strongly. 
I know I have. I'm doing my part. Got our podcast going on. I've donated the campaign. I'm putting my money literally where my mouth is. And there's more coming, John. And we have to take responsibility of ourselves to help men, leaders like John McKinney, to help us and help the society. I got Anthony and Vince back here. Anthony, uh, you guys get that up on our website, McKinney4LA.com, YourLeoNation.com, YourLeoNation on Instagram. You can find it there. Uh, look for his good-looking picture. And by the way, ladies, yes, he's single. Good-looking guy. So <laughs> I, I was shocked. What? What you, you got it? Yeah, must be a picky guy. But get out there, support him. Money, resources, like he said, right now, money is the key uh, for this threshold here coming up at the end of June. So John McKinney, God bless you. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're sought after and we are trying to help you as best I can. I and I am it. confident that I'm sitting across from my table here in my dining room for the next DA of Los Angeles County. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. Thanks, sir. Thank you. Bye-bye.